0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Sam Quinones. Sam, how are you? Great, Joshua, how are you? I'm very good. And I've been anticipating this conversation with, I don't know how to describe the mix of feelings. It's like very powerful feelings of connection and feelings of confusion. I'll just read a little bit of your bio for listeners. You are a journalist, storyteller, former LA Times reporter, author of three acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction. You just came out with The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the time of fentanyl and meth. It's a pretty heavy title, although except for the hope part. And the New York Journal book said, this is such a weird thing to hear. Together with his earlier Dreamland, the least of us confirms his place as a leading chronicler of an American nightmare. So your book before this was Dreamland, (laughs) True Tales of America's Opiate Epidemic. You've been a journalist for 30 years, a freelance writer in Mexico, covering immigration, drug trafficking, neighborhood issues, gangs, and you've won... I can't. If i list all the awards, it'll be too long of a. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to Columbia. So, Columbia Journal School selected him as 2008 Medal of the Cabot Prize. And right. I should ask you a bit about yourself, but I can't help but mention that right off the bat, as I'm reading these things, there's a couple things that really came to mind. Uh-huh. It occurred to me that my stepbrother spent years in prison. And the story that I heard was that he had a motorcycle accident. They prescribed him opiate painkillers. And then when that went away, he was still on it. And that led to him getting more. And now he's off as far as I know. And I never really engaged with him on it because I didn't feel ashamed. I just didn't feel I would trust his story. I wasn't sure if it was, it sounded too much like what I read in the papers. And maybe he was just saying, that's one thing. And then listeners to my podcast know that I live not far from Washington Square Park. And I've been here 20 years before that. I was in New York. So it's always been a place where you could buy weed at night. But since the pandemic, there's still the weed dealers, but then I think I know what crack pipe is when I see it. So I see a lot of crack, and there's lots of syringes around, which I presume I just thought heroin, but now probably fentanyl. Or a meth. Or meth.
1: Too. Could be. I mean, a lot of people shoot meth, you know. I would say I'm happy to talk about my own background if you like. I would say that your stepfather's story sounds fairly common to me. I met many people, he's lucky he's alive. Now, that doesn't mean that in certain circumstances, opioids are always bad. I mean, we do surgery based on opioids, actually a very beneficial kind of drug. It's just that the way, you know, it's all in the details, the way they were used, how much People were given whether there was any care at all to how long people were using them and for what reason and on and on and on. And they just the excessive amounts of the stuff and the endless refills, all of that is what got us into trouble. I mean, these are effective drugs within the box, the limited window in which they should be used. And doctors weren't very well versed, particularly primary care doctors, but also sometimes surgeons as well, weren't very well versed in how they should be used. And so lots of people. Lots of people got caught up in problems that should never have happened because they were overprescribed. by that. I mean, there was no attention paid to how much they were actually given and what kind of refills. I know a woman who's been 20 years addicted to this stuff, and it began when a doctor, believe it or not, prescribed opioids for a foot rash. Foot, There's no yeah. chance you should ever use opioids for a foot rash, you know, and she's a woman without any other discernible addictive quality. She doesn't smoke, doesn't drink coffee, doesn't drink alcohol, but enough time spent on this stuff and almost anybody can fall into it. So anyway, I mean, I would say that you might want to talk to him about his story, but I would say that what you just outlined sounds fairly common to me.
0: Can you share some of your background of what led you into this area in this level of depth?
1: Yeah, I'm a reporter for a long time. My father was an English professor in Claremont, California. My mother was an elementary school teacher. Books were big around our hearts, so was storytelling. My father told me the entire story of Odysseus on the way from Harvard to Claremont when I was four. So when you grow up with that kind of storytelling, and I remember just being well addicted to the stories of Odysseus. I couldn't remember what the guy's name was. Guy who begins with, oh, daddy, please tell me that story again the Cyclops, the sirens, the beeswax, and the ears. The, oh, I mean, it was just intoxicating stuff, you know? And so maybe. From then on, I didn't have a deep love of writing, though, I would say came later when I was a kid, went to UC Berkeley, didn't study journalism, never studied journalism, just got into it. I think it's a better way to go, frankly. And I was lucky, really lucky enough to get kind of the best job close to my first job. My second job was covering crime in the city of Stockton, California, and that is where I learned to write because I wrote four or five stories a day for four years. And when you do that, you come away with enormous confidence in your ability to meet deadlines, to get facts right, to make the story readable. And I did a lot of feature writing as well there. It was just fantastic. I became addicted myself again. To crime reporting and reporting about drugs and prostitution. And there was just huge problems with street gangs in Stockton, very high homicide rate every year because it was the middle of the crack epidemic. And the crack epidemic was associated, in my mind, I can tell you very strongly with high rates of crime, assaults, gang shootings, drive bys, and all that, but also carjackings. And that was the nature of the crack epidemic, which was a very public drug epidemic. You could not really avoid. Kid. and then long story short i ended up going to mexico for 10 years i wrote down there as a freelance writer didn't write anything about crime wrote about immigration and new political change down in mexico That was very very exciting wrote two books there came back after 10 years in mexico and worked for the la times and it was at the la times that the drug war kicked off down in mexico which i was stunned to see because i'd spent 10 years traveling by bus all over the country it was very quiet Wonderful place to be, wonderful place to find stories and so on. And then the drug war between the cartels kicked off and it just everything went to hell. And I was in L.A. by then, at the Times, L.A. Times. And I just began to cover like the the U.S. side of what my drug trafficking in the United States from Mexico. And that led me to this whole idea that the heroin trafficking out of Mexico was was really on the rise again. I couldn't understand that. Why would we anybody be going back to using heroin ever again? That made no sense to me. And so I wrote about that in Dreamland with this one town of guys from Mexico who sold heroin, black tar heroin, like pizza, like operating a delivery system, essentially very much like a pizza delivery system. And along the way, we to understand that the reason they had such a banner business was because of this very aggressive revolution and opioid prescribing in the United States. And it got me to understand that that was the much bigger story, you know? So anyway, that's a very (laughs) short, and that's been my life for the last, geez, it's been like 10 years of more, maybe more of just writing about that topic and getting farther into Mexican drug trafficking issues than I ever did when I was down in Mexico.
0: Before getting to the topic, the writing, I'm curious if you don't mind my asking that starting writing five stories a day doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate into book length stuff. No. Did you have great editing? Did you?
1: No, but it does mean that you focus on getting the details right. Mm-hmm. Also, with crime reporting, I came away with a very strong feeling of who the experts were. Obviously, speaking with police and prosecutors and parole officers and all the rest, the sheriffs, is essential, and you can't get away from it. But I also came away with the feeling that the place to find the story in much deeper and richer detail was in talking with criminals themselves or people who were in custody. And so for my Dreamland book, I mean, I talked to, oh, I don't know, it wasn't 12, 10 or 12 Mexican guys who were involved in the system and all of them were in prison in the United States. A couple of guys had just gotten out, but they I, I contacted them while they were in prison. And you know, the other thing that I began to kind of develop as I, particularly when I was in Mexico, was narrative story to longer tales. And as a crime reporter, you're writing stories that are 10 inches, 15 inches. Sometimes I would, you know, they break me off and I work on a story that was like 40, 50 inches. But it was uh, rare that I wrote over like, a you know, 1,500 words, 2,000 word story. And in Mexico, I began working on much longer pieces, 7,000, 5,000, 7, thousand word stories, my first two books. Were actually stories from Mexico about that size. And there were just, you know, 15 different stories from Mexico and 15 different stories about Mexican immigration. Those are my first two books. So I think the narrative impulse was there for a very long time. But also then I've been honing my idea that of where to find those stories, who to ask Mm -hmm. about those stories. And again, police and law enforcement in all its various forms is essential and very, very interesting and very good to talk to, essential to talk to. But I also began to realize if I don't reach out to people in prison and in jail, I'll never really know the full story. And they can add so much unbelievable detail that it really helps you bring out the story. And so I've kind of done that. I don't tell you how many jail interviews or phone calls or what have you. I've done, it's probably, well, 100 to 200 by now. I, you know, I don't even know anymore. But that's because I realized that's where you find these stories. And you just have to ask. And a lot of people won't even respond. Some people tell you flat out no. But there's a 10 to 20% of the people you ask will say yes. When they do, man, I've never been disappointed.
0: Yeah, the writing is page turning. I could easily see the stuff being horrifying and wanted to put the book away, but that's not what happens. It's like, yeah. I get lost in it and almost never found myself popped out of it. Right.
1: Me neither. I don't ever feel depressed. Well, that's not ever, but not often. Let's put it that way. Because I'm interested in everything. You know, and that's what you need to be as a journalist. And it, it needs to grow naturally from you. And it does in me. I just always want to know. I hear amazing stories. You know, I hope to write books someday about the tuba in American culture because the tuba is just such an interesting instrument, kind of back of the band kind of instrument. Now it's coming out to the floor. Don't have to get into that. I just use that as an example of topics that I think are fascinating. It's just a wonderful way to make a living, to live, is being a journalist and writing these kinds of stories. And so, I mean, I've written 200 plus murder stories, you know, in Stockton, basically. I've covered seven mass murders, mass shootings, including the one in Tucson with Gabby Giffords, the congresswoman, you know, and it's just always part of the challenge and the of telling a story, finding the poignant story, not just the gory story, I guess, is also a big part of it. And also wanting people to binge read what you have, what you put together. And that's definitely what I wanted to have happen with the Dreamland book and now with the least of us.
0: Well, let's use that to get into mm-hmm. the content. I hear a passion for America and what you're describing. Oh, sure. And some time ago, I read, and I don't know if this is accurate, but that there are other countries where opiates and addictive drugs are more available, there's less restriction, but there's less addiction. And it feels like America has a I'm sure it's everywhere, but it feels like it's more here.
1: Yes. Oh, no, I would say it's definitely more here. There's (laughs) numerous reasons for that. Starting with the most not superficial, but obvious, I guess, is that it was heavily, heavily promoted by drug companies as a cure to all our pain. A
0: non-addictive cure. Exactly
1: right. Now science now knew that these pills were non-addictive provided only that the patient be pain paid, have pain. You would not get addicted to this. Of course, that's true in some very, very limited way and very quickly becomes untrue as soon as you start giving people refills or saying, you know, take as many as you want, that kind of thing. It doesn't work out that way. But then also, you know, it was overlaid on, a, on several layers of American culture. One was a layer of legal addictive products and services, social media, sugar, all kinds of junk food, fast food, chicken nuggets. That's a manufactured form of chicken kind of clay that is 60% fat and salt. Mm -hmm. You know, we're assaulted constantly by, you know, soda ads and almost pornographic photos of burgers just like, you know, glistening with fat and all very up close and personal and cheese dripping off of it. And, And, you know, there's gambling and pornography and video games and nicotine and, you know, all of that is part of American culture as well. At the same time, though, I would say that there's a couple other things that are beneath all this. And that is one of those is another enormous reservoir of trauma that we find across America, I would say, and abuse, neglect, beatings, rape, so much unreported rape, it seems to me. Just the trauma that these pills were overlaid on is really um, astounding, I think, and hard to quantify, but seems to be powerful. And perhaps at the root of all of this is this idea that An American culture that we all kind of bought into as a culture we bought into, which was that it's okay to be alone. It's good to be alone. Being alone is not as difficult as being with other people. We wanted convenience. We wanted easy answers. We didn't want the doctor to tell us, you have to work at your own wellness. You have to get up and you have to walk more. You have to walk upstairs uh, more. You have to eat less crappy food. You have to stop drinking, smoking that we wanted the doctor to give us miracles. And doctors really don't have miracles, although some of modern medicine is would suggest that we do. Mm. So what do they have? They had opioid painkillers that now they knew, quote unquote, to be non-addictive when used to treat pain. And so all of this is, makes the United States, I believe, unique in the world And that uh, there's so much that these pills overlaid beneath it and then of course you also had i should have mentioned as well you have a historic change in our heroin markets down in mexico used to be you know if you watch the french connection and serpico and all those great movies from the 70s all our heroin comes from the far east well that stopped in 1980s in the early 90s by the early 90s all of our heroin comes from mexico or from colombia and so you've got this cheap alternative too if you can't find pills People who are desperate enough on the street go to heroin. So all of this is what makes the country, United States, unique in its consumption of opioids, which is definitely where we stand.
0: I mean, like a perfect storm. Yeah. Maybe an undertone of what you're saying is that I feel like also the U.S., we have a very strong, um, I don't know what you call it, techno-optimist view of technology as a positive thing that will help us. And certainly in the area of the environment, a common view is, What will the scientists come up with that will solve this problem? Right. With no view of what are the side effects, or we'll figure out the side effects later.
1: That's a good point. I do agree with that. Yes. Right now, they've always been working uh, to find an opioid that has the same level of painkiller and none of the addictive consequences. And uh, heroin, when it first came out in the late 1800s in Germany, was believed to be that drug. Then Dilaudid, I believe it was, or was it Demerol, one of those two? And then Oxycontin was believed also to be the same thing. We're always looking for that one. And my feeling is, you know, almost like morally or philosophically, these things have consequences that we need to understand and respect because while they do offer great benefits, and there's no doubt of the pain-killing benefits of opioids and that are magnificent and have been uh, magnificent through the centuries. I'm not sure that finding an opioid that doesn't have this other consequence of addiction would be necessarily some kind of a good thing. Like we would find some way of it turning into a disaster. Mm-hmm. These things exist in a balance. I believe that nature, everything works towards an equilibrium. And when you get that equilibrium out of balance, which is what drugs do to the brain. Mm-hmm. For example, you get all kinds of bad consequences. So scientists have been telling me for a long time, no, we're working on these painkillers that won't have any will kill the pain, but won't have the addictive side effects. And I'm like, well, OK, I, you know, I hope you it good, I guess. But I think the consequences are there for a reason. We have pain in our bodies for a reason. It's our bodies telling us, don't do this or don't do this or attend to this problem now. Don't wait, you know. And people who don't feel pain very quickly die. They can't function, you know. It's, a, it's not a good thing to not have pain. Pain is a warning sign for our bodies that we need. We've evolved to need them.
0: So There's a really strong parallel in what you're saying that I'm translating to Yeah, people are constantly trying to make an energy source that doesn't pollute. Coal was really dirty, but now oil was a little better and natural gas was a little better. And the more I look into solar and wind and nuclear... They're not the panacea that people think. And like I was with plastic, it's like we keep trying to make something that we use it and then suddenly it disappears and doesn't end up in the Pacific garbage patch.
1: It doesn't have any consequences beyond the use. Yes, yeah, so I would say that that's probably uh, true. I would also say that, like opioids, are really wonderful. I mean, I've used them myself, and they've done within the very, very limited window, and they are intended to be used. They've done exactly what they should have done, and they've been a benefit to me and my life. And this is also true with other people across history, I think. It's when you start believing that they therefore represent a solution to all our problems, and that that they absolve us of any action or any responsibility that can take care of all our problems. That was what we got into. The opioid epidemic in my mind, it's on a certain level, it's about drug companies and then drug traffickers and all that. But if you get down to it, I frequently think it has a lot to do with the idea that we wanted to be absolved of any hard work of working on our bodies and making sure our bodies were in tune with the way our bodies have evolved to be in tune and need to be in tune. So being overweight, getting very little exercise, doing things that aren't we know aren't good for our body sitting, sitting a lot, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? So, and I think with plastic, my feeling of what plastic is, plastic can be a wonderful replacement for some kind of wood products and tree using trees and so on. And, but once we start getting into the the predominant way in which plastics are used, they become a complete catastrophe. And that is single use throwaway plastics and our seas and our landfills are filling with this With this stuff, it's how you use this stuff. And if you use it the way you know that we're intended to use it, then it is either a benefit or less of a disaster. Let's put it that way, and and not really a a, doesn't have the consequences that it come with, say single use plastic, which to my mind are the just the, the horrible bane on our existence now.
0: Does this apply to our drug situation? That I describe the way that the world looks now compared to say pre-industrial revolution when it was more verdant and green is the physical manifestation of our values yes because it's our behavior that does this and we behave driven by what we care about what we you know what we value we can throw a technology at anything but if that technology is going to build on the values that we're living by so if we're living by growth and externalizing costs we're going to get more of that Mm -hmm. does that describe the situation with fentanyl and meth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, once you open, a a, see, it it seems to me that one of the things that really was the basis for our opioid problem was that we got away from the idea, particularly in the United States, I should have mentioned this more in detail perhaps earlier, that particularly in the United States, we got away from this whole idea that we need to be in community. It's it's what has allowed us to survive. Human beings survived because we needed each other. And when, when we worked together, even though we didn't like each other, even though it was messy, even though it was like conflicted and all that, it still was the way you kind of find solutions to the problems that beset us. And I would say that in the United States, what we ended up doing in the last 40 years is to say, well, those rules don't apply to us. Like, we don't need each other. So you begin to see ways of behaving or ways of living that don't involve people almost at all. You know, in your car, on your screen, in your house, and even in the house, the house is now very big, You know, you look and you see, well, there's three or four people living in that house. There's no need for four people to live in a house that big, you know, six bathrooms and whatever. And to me, it feels like this is kind of the root of it all. And what it then gives rise to is a series of increasingly dangerous Pandora's boxes. Or once that Pandora's box is open, you kind of get this whole opioid idea that we can solve all our problems that exists because in part not entirely but certainly in part because we don't treat our bodies the way they need to be treated we we don't exercise enough we eat crappy food we don't you know and that eventually that that will be discovered by the underworld and the drug underworld which in mexico is extraordinarily sophisticated and very capable of doing a lot and then they kind of take it in their own direction that nobody would have possibly have imagined certainly not I, you know, fentanyl and this horrid methamphetamine that's now covered the country and all this, you know, once you start breaking away from what we have evolved to need as essential to us, then eventually you can watch that continuum break off into this weird space that none of us really imagined would ever happen. And yet here we are today with it very much the case.
0: Now, I'm going to skip over a whole lot of stuff that I want to ask, but uh, this is so you wrote a lot about solutions and things that people are doing. Can we jump to some more? Sure. The, the part about community, the part about doing yeah. the things ourselves. and
1: Yeah. So I wrote a book called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. The idea was we face now a very daunting situation where there's these two the worst drugs literally the worst drugs on the street deadliest most mind-mangling drugs on the street of ever in the history of our country are on the street now they're cheaper they're more prevalent than ever it's an historically unprecedented achievement that one source the mexican drug trafficking world down on the western side of mexico can literally cover entire united states with two drugs never happened before so it's a very daunting thing and so I was struck with, well, what is then our defense? What do we do? What should we do? I'm an American. I have a daughter. I have, I'm a parent. I feel this every bit as much as any reader uh, would feel it. And the more I wrote, and this began really with the Dreamland book, the more I wrote, the more I began to understand the importance of small action. Small action, step by step, not looking for glory nor thinking you're going to save the world. Nor thinking that you are going to be applauded as virtuous for doing so, you know, that kind of thing. There's this feeling I came upon that was not expecting to understand by the time I finished dreamland that, that really this was the, this is where what we had gotten away from. And that all of this was just symptoms of having gotten away from this whole idea that we needed each other and the idea that we've done so much to destroy what brings us together. And that's why I used for Dreamland, I used this swimming pool as really a metaphor for America. America had this swimming pool in the small town called Portsmouth, Ohio, had been dug up and destroyed. It was the town plaza. It was a central meeting place for generations of people in that town. And, you know, the Rust Belt syndrome sets in, jobs go, people go, Main Street dries up, and eventually the pool has to be dug up. And that leaves the whole town very vulnerable to this opioid thing. Well, that seemed to me what we've done in America in many, many, many different ways uh, all across this country for 40 years. And so I set about writing a book that included, yes, the threats of the legal stuff that's all addictive and very, very finely tuned to hit our brains in just the right way, sodas and chicken nuggets and sugar, et It's cetera, cetera, all that stuff, social media. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the very powerful drug issue coming out of Mexico. And on the other side, and so that's on one side of the book, on the other side of the book, really more than half the book, I would say, heart and soul of the book, if you ask me, is the stories of people doing small things, again not because they're going to save the community or save the world but just because it, in a small way they make the world a little bit better place a little bit like you're picking up litter in uh, near your house in New York City you know that kind of thing it's the small stuff that we have thought well it doesn't matter i'm not getting applauded or it doesn't it's not saving it's not doing anything and i just don't think that's true at all i think it's that's the only way you make over a period of time a lot of people doing this, that you make significant social changes in small stuff. It's the only way an addict recovers from drug addiction. Is a day-to-day small stuff. Just not using today. Just don't use today, okay? Talk about tomorrow, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. From, viewed from afar, that may look like as going one day without drugs. What does that do? On the ground, it's everything. It's so big. It's such an important Thing. So you see this kind of attitude at work. And so that's why the stories that fill half the book are really about the kinds of things they are. So they're about this guy. One, for example, a couple of examples, just so your listeners know a guy named Bird who lived in the city. Of uh, Muncie, Indiana, which in a South N- Muncie neighborhood that once had the two largest transmission factories in the United States, employing thousands and thousands of people. And while well, these factories begin to fall apart, downsize, and downsize again over a period of many years. And they're about to, they're closing the factories. The city decides, you know, we can't, we don't have budget. So we're going to have to start closing the community centers. One of these community centers is right across the street from where Byrd lives. Byrd had once worked at this community center. So this was going to be locked up and maybe, who knows, destroyed or whatever. It was certainly locked up because there's no money. And they do that. They lock it up and everything. And that's how the city leaders believe everything's going, except for that bird keeps the key. And every day... The youngsters in the neighborhood know to talk, knock on Bird's door and he'll come open up the community center. They'll play basketball, they'll play whatever, they do their karate or whatever. He'll open it up for uh, older folks to play cards, for wedding receptions, for birthdays. He becomes a community center unto himself in a way by by allowing this center that the city fathers believe is closed. Mm-hmm. Without any budget, he's doing this on his own. He's fixing the toilet and he's mowing the lawn. And this goes on for several years, allowing this community, this neighborhood to really weather the worst of the industrialization and the opioid thing also arrives as well. It's that kind of story that I just, when I come upon a story of Bird, I just think I'm, you know, it just confirms my idea that I'm like the luckiest person alive. I get to tell a story like this that nobody else has told. It's just beautiful, just a beautiful, beautiful story. And I just love those kinds of stories. They're very exhilarating to me. And so I write about drug trafficking and all that, but it's a story of guys like Bird that really, you know, or the story about a woman named Jill Martin, who's a retiree from corporate America, begins tutoring at the jail in her county in Kentucky. And from there, long story short, comes to this idea that she needs to get into the business of removing people's tattoos because tattoos are such an impediment to actually a productive, fulfilling life. You're never going to move forward with all these very visible, very, very scary tattoos. And so her husband has died. And so she invests the life insurance money, $50,000 in a laser uh, tattoo removal machine. And she begins to remove people's tattoos, particularly the visible ones on the hands and neck and the face. And all that. And including a tattoo from a woman uh, on a woman's inner thigh put there by her pimp with his name right there by her inner, inner inner thigh. You know, it's like these kinds of folks who understand that there's a fulfilling life to be led by doing this kind of thing. It's not all about me. It's about what I can do in a community to help people help the place be a little bit better than it was before. Again, nobody's saving the world here, but it's these kinds of stories that I just got so, so excited with, you know, and I love doing.
0: So many parallels with environmental things that yeah. I hope you don't mind my opining that the, the number one thing I hear when I talk to people about doing stuff is what I do doesn't matter. This isn't going to fix the world. What's the point? Yeah. And by contrast, go to Silicon Valley and you got all these people like, oh, we're going to scale. This is going to be really big. And they accelerate the problem. They exacerbate it. Yeah, I mean, like Uber was supposed to decrease miles driven, but it increased miles driven. Yeah. I'm not going to go into the whole pattern, but the, you can see it coming a mile away.
1: I think you're right about that. I think it's that attitude that is also so un-American that it doesn't really matter what I do. You know, all our entire country's history in many ways was about people doing things that in small ways that that supposedly didn't matter because they weren't saving the world. It's a remarkable thing. And, you know, you can also see the patterns with the gun issue. Every time there's a mass slaughter, and again, as I said, I've covered seven of those, what is the debate? Well, we need to do this. Well, the the response is always, well, that wouldn't have stopped this. Oh, that wouldn't have stopped this. This wouldn't have stopped it. There's never this idea that, no, it wouldn't have stopped it. It would have reduced it by 10%. Or six percent, or twenty percent. Yeah, it wouldn't have stopped it. We all we want all or perfection or nothing. And I just think that that is a very dangerous way to make policy. I think it's not a good way to live either. I can tell you that as part of my life, I've not come close to the approaches that you use. I have to say, but during Dreamland, I began to understand that I was part of this whole issue. Right? Even though I didn't think I was, and even though I, you know, I just I didn't couldn't see how I was. But I I realized that my own consumer choices meant something. So I stopped drinking sodas. And then I stopped with a lot of sugar products. We had turned off cable TV news. As a journalist, it's very hard to live without a cell phone, but I've tried very hard to uh, limit it. And I definitely can't write with my phone or or computer uh, on the internet. So I have these ways of stopping it while I'm writing so I can focus you know i've tried very hard to with not much success deal with single use plastics in our house mm-hmm. some success not much you know it's all of which i know just because i bring my own plastic bags for the 50th time to the supermarket doesn't mean that it's solving the problem of single use plastics but i i don't you know i just don't care i just think that it matters what i do And if you're just waiting for everybody else to change, you got to be the change. I think Gandhi said that Mm -hmm. there's many things I want to keep trying. It came to me in the middle of writing Dreamland that a lot of this has to do with our own approach, what we expect out of life, what we expect from certain experts like doctors. We expect them to give us solve all our problems. I stopped doing that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I believe it's up to me and I work out more. I walk more. I don't eat as much and I eat definitely do not eat the crud that I used to, particularly when I was traveling, that I used to eat, all that kind of stuff. You know, Sodas, I don't drink them, that kind of stuff. Still got a long way to go, I I have to say. Um, I'm constantly trying to think of new ways of doing it, but it all grows from this idea that came to me while writing about the opioid epidemic that we all need to participate in some way, in these ways, in addressing what's going on around us, that it does matter.
0: If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodekcom donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. You're writing about hope, I take it. You're writing about action, about connection and being involved. So in Washington Square Park, there's all these users. And if I go to the cops and say, they're clearly dealing and using. And the cops say, well, if we put them in, they're out back here in about an hour. And so there's no point. But the cops aren't, I mean, there could be crimes going on, but that's not where to look for the solution. It's everywhere. It's all of us. That sounds oversimplistic when I say it.
1: I've often thought that there's some role to play, and I don't, don't know how to do this exactly. What you do find among folks who are drug addicted is... It is certainly true that people from very well-to-do families and so on, and middle-class families are part of the mix. And certainly the opioid epidemic made that clear. But frequently, the folks who are most caught up in it are folks who have never had a break. And they've had, you know, growing up, their folks were drug addicted. Mom had boyfriends, dad had girlfriends, violence, rape, on, 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 and on, on. And I just kind of wonder about how to do this, but maybe find one family that needs help and just focus your resources on that one family. Don't worry about anybody else. There's too much. Other people will worry about other families. Do you just figure out this one family? I don't know how to actually do that, how to, but it occurred to me that that might be a way of doing this. Just say, I'm working with this family. I want to make sure that they can get the opportunity, the kids get the opportunities to go to a good school, to go to college, to learn what will allow them to thrive in education. Because I believe they think that's even part of the problem, that there's just no ability of kids to thrive even from early on because they haven't been prepared or there's such chaos at home. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this idea. I, I, it's been foisted upon me because I cannot avoid, as a reporter, you try not to avoid the obvious that's like right in front of you. but I, I'm trying to not avoid the idea that of the, the amount of trauma that goes into the life of a drug addict is really mm-hmm. pretty profound. And so trying to find ways of dealing with that without just saying, you know, the foster child, children, that's why they're there. And that's not good. So...
0: So this addiction model of the chemical is going to do it to you is just it has something to do with it, but it's really this is a manifestation of deep-rooted problems of our interconnections, how we view each other. When I pick up litter every day, and I think what goes in, I could I don't have it in me to drop a piece of litter on the ground.
1: Yeah, me neither.
0: And I see people doing it sometimes. And sometimes I think if I'm in the northwest corner where the the fentanyl, meth, and, and crack users are, I think they if tomorrow has no chance of being better than today. There's no future for me. No one's going to help me. Why well, should I help them? It's easier for me to drop it than not. So why not? But that the rest of the park is filled with people too. And their messes are just as big. Yeah. Everyone comes in with pizza and coffees. And one time I was walking with my friend, I said, what fraction of people here have something disposable that they're probably going to leave She was like, looked around 85%. And I can't differentiate that much between uh, how to... Here's how I'll put it. My mom knows whenever I write in my blog, if I start writing about a highly addictive, refined substance from a plant, she knows I'm talking about sugar and I'm trying to make it look like I'm talking about something else. (laughs) And there's clear signs of people addicted all over the place to sugar. Of course. I had Michael Mosses on the podcast and he was... I presume you know him, I'm not sure, but it...
1: Yeah, I know all of them.
0: The word addiction applies, but it's not saying it's these chemicals that do it. Even when it is the chemicals, it's people figuring out how to profit if it's a big corporation yeah, or get market share. And when you said that these Mexican organizations are very sophisticated, I'm thinking, I bet they're like a multinational and that they have marketing, probably not written out this way, but like marketing divisions and figure out how do we get market share? How do we increase usage? How do we get faster delivery? Things like that.
1: It's not quite that way, but the result is the same. It's not quite like they have these guys with, yeah, marketing arms and boards of directors and that kind of thing. I think a lot of it has to do with one person figures it out, figures out what to do, like making counterfeit pills that contain fentanyl now, Mm -hmm. right? Well, this is all over the country by the tens of millions, right? And they look like Percocets, perfect replicas of Percocets or Xanax bars, what they only contain fentanyl and they're killing people all over the country because people fastened on this idea in Mexico that, you know, there were a lot of these folks who were having trouble getting a legitimate pharmaceutical. So now we give them these pills and the, you know, and so there's this big market of, people, of Americans in love with pills and we're going to satisfy that. Okay. That's part of it. But I think what ends up happening is that people start in on it and one person... Figures it out, and then pretty soon three more get it, and then twelve more, and then fifty, and then seven hundred get it. You know, and that's kind of what we. And if you have the chemicals, I was just going to say that part of the the issue here is I have to say this too, and this is another conclusion I've come to as I work on these on this topic, and that is that supply matters inordinately. It's so important, and nobody ever got addicted to a drug she didn't use. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't happen. And so I think that that is also part of the problem with sugar. It's ubiquitous with fat and salt, too, to a large degree, to pornography, particularly with the internet, you know, and and it's also the case with fentanyl and meth. There's this continuum of addictive substances and dealers. And at the one end, you have Facebook software engineers and soda manufacturers and casino designers and pornographers and video game makers and then you keep going and going and going and you get the same idea of people you know using supply and refining that supply more and more and more and expanding that supply so you're never away from it and eventually you get to the Sinaloa drug cartel and the new generation Jalisco new generation drug cartel in Mexico so to me that's how this feels So while I'm interested in talking about our own responses as individuals, as Americans, as free people, I also want to very clearly recognize the role of very sophisticated organizations of people with lots of money and intelligence and expertise in making substances that hit our brain chemistry in just the right way and making those substances even more potent right? So it's it's not just that it's our issue. It's that we have allowed or these folks have taken the liberty of expanding their supply. That's why the uh, fast food companies, the Burger King, McDonald's, they never change their logos. Never. You know, jack-in-the-box. Why? Because they know that those logos are triggers for our brain chemistry. Uh They put them on every freeway off-ramp and they speak in terms, as I was talking about in the book, they speak in terms that any addict would you know, would understand triggers. This will trigger the cravings. My, Our burgers will, you know, our tacos, we're Taco Bell, it would trigger the cravings, of, you know, that kind of thing. And every addict knows the triggers and cravings are not good. They're torment, mm-hmm. utter torment and a life of disaster, leading to a life of disaster. And if you saw a Sinaloa drug cartel guy saying, this is going to trigger all your cravings for the heroin or whatever, we would be very upset. But when McDonald's does it, about their burgers or Burger King or Wendy's, does it, you know, then, oh, no, that's okay because, well, they are selling something legal or so. I mean, we don't control that kind of speech at all. I think we should, frankly. And the same with marijuana. You know, if you look at High Times Magazine, High Times Magazine years ago totally took, the burger idea and transferred it to pot buds, you know, you don't see a burger unless it's like the size, it's like three quarters of the photograph. It's enormous. And it's oozing with all this drippings and all that stuff. Well, that's exactly what those buds used to look like that I used to see in high times magazine on the Seven Elevens. With these buds that are just obese buds, you know, everything's obese about this stuff too. That's the other thing. It's obese buds oozing this resin and stuff and photographed in just the right light. And oh my God, you got to go get smoked some of that, you know, it's that marketing and supply that to me is also essential part of this story. We can't really talk about it without it.
0: I got to point you to my most recent TEDx talk, which is about this. I'll share it a bit that yeah. there's all these books on nutrition and you might know Michael Pollan wrote, Eat Food, Not Too Much, Mostly Plants. And when he says eat food, you first read it and think, well, what else? But he's saying there's not food. Doritos. Yeah. you know, And McDonald's and Starbucks. And he's saying, don't eat that. But he's saying that's not food. But he doesn't call it not food. And all these books, they say fast food, ultra-processed food, comfort food, convenience food, frankenfood, and they're trying to avoid calling it food but they keep using the word food in it and so people can say well it's maybe not the best food because there's always like the single mom in a food desert three jobs and three kids and you know she doesn't have time for x and what is she going to do because she can fill the kids bellies with mcdonald's with a dollar and she goes to farmer's market she can't do that that's the myth that people have because it's not more expensive to buy vegetables but they think it is yeah right and mcdonald's doesn't they're not doing anyone any favors they're yeah. They are the cause of the impoverishment and the lack of time. They're not the solution to it. In any case, yeah. they can say, well, it's maybe not the best food, but it's still food. So I came up with this word doof, which is food backward. <laughs> so doof is, I will not call, you'll notice I'll say McDonald's and Starbucks, but I won't say fast food, except like, I won't call it food Yeah, and I won't call it eating. It's consuming. They want you to consume, 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 consume.
1: It's like drug dealers.
0: And when you get the concept, you see it everywhere. Cause it's, yeah. you know, Facebook is doof.
1: Right. Oh, you're right about that. I totally see this. And I think this is, I think every country in the world, every modern, you know, an industrialized country in the world faces this. I think we we face it to a greater degree, maybe in the United States, because we have this kind of, I would say, less a fair approach to capitalism that allows people just to say things and sell things that mm, aren't very wise. But I agree. I think that a lot of this is coming from my background, I guess. I'm always comparing this stuff to what drug dealers do, what drug dealers know. The more you get people use them, the more they're going to use, the more they're going to be kind of like connected to it, the harder it is for them to get away from it. This is stuff that drug dealers on the street understand. They may not articulate it very well, but they know, Mm -hmm. they know this stuff. And we're now in an economy where you have, as I said, major amounts of power, money, know-how and knowledge devoted to this stuff you know to to making this stuff more and more refined to be able to attack our brain chemistry and that's the a whole ball game right there
0: on the supply side i think you talked about if you want some drugs from me and i got drugs and i give you some how does it work yeah. if i give you credit so you're indebted to me now you need to sell To get that money back so now you're gonna that's gonna spread and easy credit drives not just someone getting addicted but someone addicting everyone that they can
1: right And, and i would say that that's what's happened with the fentanyl and meth that they have been made are being made as we speak in quantities that are so enormous that all of a sudden people on the street who Never would be big users of the stuff and certainly would never be big dealers of it, which is a whole other level of that world, you know, or all of a sudden, you know, have pounds of this stuff to deal with. And how do you get rid of it? You make sure that those folks get credit. You give it to them for free. There was a time not so long ago when if you had a heroin addict who was like a street addict, you would never front him $5 because you never see it again. But that implies a scarcity of the drug that you're dealing with, like heroin. It was relatively scarce. With fentanyl, it's not scarce at all. With meth, it's not scarce at all. It's prevalent as hell. And so I had several people tell me who were like farther up. I front these guys, and if they pay me 80% of what they owe me, I'm doing really, really well. If they the other 20% or 20% of what I front out, I don't get paid back for it. Well, okay. You know, no big deal. That's not the end of the world. As it would have been 15 years ago, had you printed a guy a hundred dollars, all of a sudden that's a big part of your. So now it's not. And so what this has also done, though, is expand the number of dealers. So it's like almost like there's a McDonald's franchise on every street corner, or a Subway franchise on every street corner, dealing this methamphetamine in the form of some guy who five years ago, ten years ago, never would have been trusted with the kinds of supply that these guys are giving him.
0: I look at the doof places and I'm thinking for like their drug pushing and the way you just said it, like one on every corner. I'm like, man, it keeps hitting home this. Uh... Yeah. And
1: no, I would say that that's the whole thing with counterfeit pills too. Now, now the counterfeit pills are so, you know, it used to be the drug dealer at the lower levels, the drug dealer's biggest dilemma was where do I get my dope to sell? The suppliers kept getting arrested. It was one of the benefits, frankly, of the drug war. You keep arresting these guys. There's always like turbulence. You don't know where you're going to get the dope. And it's always kind of this crazy thing. Well, now that's been solved. The dope's everywhere. And with the pills that contain only fentanyl made in Mexico, literally by the tens of millions, they are coming in. It's just incredible. Last month, I'm sorry, in November, they busted a house in Scottsdale, Arizona, small house. It's got had 1.7 million pills. You know, that's, that is the more than the entire DEA sector for all of Los Angeles sees in 2020. You know, so what I'm saying is it's that massive supply making there with no friction at all or very little friction in finding your dope. That is what has been achieved. It's not necessarily that the trafficking world in Mexico is thinking that way because it's too diffuse to really think as one organism. And we get into it's a whole other discussion on the Mexican trafficking world. We need to get into it right now. But but basically, there's not such an organized proposal like let's do this. What has happened is that nevertheless, that is it achieved almost the same result. And so you have all these pills coming in now. And so now the big question is not where do I get my dope? Where do I sell all the supply? Well, now, where do you sell supply during a time when everyone's on their phones? You sell them on their phones, right? You sell them as Snapchat, Instagram. And if you go across the country, this is all the problem right now where these dealers, some of them very low level, some of them kids, some of them teenagers are selling pills using snapchat using instagram tiktok some gaming platforms etc probably some others i'm missing to anonymously sell and then home deliver because the kids can't leave the home again it's this supply of inundating 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 and eventually you create new demand none of these kids want to be hooked on fentanyl when they buy this stuff but you know that's what happens particularly so when the one connection to the world that they have is the smartphone.
0: Would you be willing to come back for a second episode and pick up here again? Sure. Yeah, no problem. I'd love to spend some time talking about... I hope people listening are thinking to themselves, what can I do? And okay, little things, but what sorts of little things? And I'd love to spend some time...
1: And you know, here's the thing too, I'm going to... I'll tell you, I'm happy to come back on. I don't know all the things people can do, but I do believe in the synergistic power of community and finding places to be with others and, you know... I I do believe in that. I do believe that that is the essential element in all this and the great defense that nobody else can really fight against once that has been achieved. The problem is we turned our back on it for so long. So yeah, happy to come back.
0: Let's leave it as a cliffhanger right there then. Anything to close with before, I mean, hopefully we'll pick up with everything again.
1: No, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. It's uh, very interesting questions. I don't often get these kinds of questions, although they're topics that I've thought a lot about and off and on. Uh, through my research, so I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to ask them.
0: Yeah, the addiction model of the environment of our view and approach, or lack of not complacency, but giving up, yeah, abdication, yeah, is to me fascinating. I think will solutions to both to either will help with the other.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's that's a big problem that we're facing in this country today and certain media seem to revel in fostering it.
0: Well, until next time, Sam, thank you very much.
1: My pleasure, Josh. Be talking to you.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.